Audio Parfait. consider myself to be very lucky that the simple fact that unlike a lot of people probably I've never had to utter the words but I don't want your ugly old cock so I feel fortunate um, I don't know how much longer it'll last I've gone this long without having to say it who knows what comes tomorrow I might spend the next 40 years having to say it every day I don't know so I'm just gonna take every day as a blessing that I've never had to say it. Or hear it. Or hear it. And um, we'll just go from there. <laughs> what would you do if I did say that to you? Um, put on a brave face. Go to cry a little. In the fetal position? To my, not like make a big show of it. I wouldn't let you know. It would be a... A personal, private matter. Probably locked away in the bathroom late at night while you're sleeping. I'm a light sleeper. I'd hear you cry. I'd turn the shower on. <laughs> I'd hear the shower. Well, you can hear the shower, but I, I'd, I'd probably sit in there and just rock back and forth. Close on or off, haven't decided yet. We'll, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. All right. Well, um, on that note, welcome back to Open a Fucking Book. Hi, how you doing? <laughs> We are on episode three yeah. of William S. Burroughs. I'm Kevin. And I am Stephanie. And we'll just get this out of the way real quick. Uh, she's still wearing the cardiac event monitor. So if you, again, uh, tried to edit out as much as possible, but some of them came through. So not a big deal. Um, so if you hear that, that's what that is. Deal with it. And I got contacts in for the first time in like a decade and a half. So if you hear me scream out in pain, don't worry. It's... It's just my eyes bleeding. So last one we left Bill, he had just moved to Tangier for the first time. He's, you know, living kind of out of the United States on his own. You know, he lived in Mexico before, but he was with Joan. You know, no more Joan. Because um, he killed her. Yeah. And uh, he he met Kiki, who we talked about, and he's on Yucadol, his, you know, new drug of choice now. So, let's pick up there because we have another murder to get to. And now this this Ooh. one, this one's not going to be as prominent in his life, but it's still it's a murder. So of course, got to talk about it, uh, and it'll come you know a little later. So that summer, Bill attempted another cure. At Kiki, wanted him to do this one. Uh, perhaps because junk had made Bill's sex drive almost completely disappear and Kiki felt his services would no longer be requ required, Kiki confiscated all his clothes and they became a, began a reduction cure, which I talked about last time where you, you slowly reduce the amount that yes. you're taking. They used a new substitute uh, preparation prescribed for him by a Dr. Apfel. It's a very German-sounding name because it's a German doctor. Uh, the rumor was that Dr. Apfel was, in fact, a concentration camp doctor who only pretended 
to be a German Jewish refugee. Bill didn't care. Uh, he was a good doctor, the best in Tangier. He still felt that he hadn't properly connected with what was really happening in Tangier. He was depressed. He yearned for Allen Ginsberg's company. In addition, he was plagued by rectal warts, which, considering he was a bottom, meant that this was a particularly troublesome inconvenience. Oh my gosh. Are you okay over there? So he's strung out on drugs and he's got STDs. Well, they're, I wouldn't say they're STD, they're warts. Which anybody could they're get. They're like herpes. Well, they're anal warts. Anybody could get. I'm going to count how many times. I'm going to say anal warts as many times as I say Allens in this, in this episode. Uh, anybody can get anal warts. You don't have to have an STD to get warts. You get a wart on the bottom of your foot. Doesn't mean it's an STD. He was a bottom. He was he, a bottom. He was having anal sex. Quite a bit. He was the bottom. We established. So, two and two together, he got the warts from the anal sex. That's an STD. It doesn't say STD in there. We can assume that it's an STD. But you, you've said it yourself. What do you do when you assume? You make a, an ass out of you and me. And it so, has anal warts. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, okay. So, he determined to have them operated on in New York... And from there, visit Allen Ginsberg in San Francisco. If circumstances seemed right, they would share an apartment. I think that's what Bill wanted. You think, uh, how, how well do Bill's plans usually go? Uh, they never go. Okay, so Bill left for New York on September 7th, 1954, and arrived on the 16th at 8 a.m. He planned to have his operation, then visit his family in Florida before continuing to San Francisco. It's a long fucking trip. It was a wasted trip to the United States. He could have had his operation in London or Paris, and the trip was tremendous stress and anxiety on Ginsburg's part, who was at this point trying to move into an apartment in Knob Hill. Uh, he wanted to live a straight life. He wanted to be done with the whole gay thing. Uh, he was an advertising executive, and he had a girlfriend named Sheila Boucher. As soon as he re had recovered enough to travel, Bill visited his family in Florida. This was not a success either. He couldn't stay with them. Uh, they had converted his, the, their spare bedroom into a television room, so he had to make do with a mediocre hotel nearby for $5 a day, which was, you know, doesn't sound like much, but back then it was a lot more money. Yeah. His parents, faced with their strung-out son, whose child they were bringing up, at their expense, kept asking him what made him return to the States in the first place. Obviously, he doesn't want to tell them that he has anal warts to get removed. Obviously, he doesn't want to tell them that he wants to go all the way to San Francisco to see if he can convince Allen Ginsberg to either let him live with him or move back to Tangier with him. Uh, and then, on top of that, his parents financially were not doing as well as what they were before, their garden supply business. Um, was, I mean, it wasn't completely ruined, but it wasn't doing great. And they wanted to reduce his allowance by half. So Bill was faced with the awful possibility 
at 40 years of age of having to find a job. Oh my well, God. Um, I can't think. So think about it. There's little in his resume that would appeal to a future employer. What What did he do? He He weaseled his way out of military service. He was a exterminator for a few months, and he's written a couple books, and that's it. Yeah. So he's... he he's forty, and he doesn't have any real skills. No, well, he did. He did work as a copywriter for a little bit. When well, you remember the woman who sat on the uh, thing and blew her guts out. Uh, so, I mean, he's got that, and he worked for the garden supply store for a little bit. But he was very racist while doing it. I mean, I can understand where he'd be a little worried. Uh, so the only thing he could think of was dealing heroin with his old friend Richie. As usual, Bill looked for someone else to blame for his predicament, but. Soon, Bill was back in New York City, booked to sail for Gibraltar on November 20th, 1954, having presumably extracted the fare from his long-suffering parents, who had relented and kept his allowance at $200 a month. So, it's like, tell you what, I'll leave as long as you don't fuck with my allowance. 40 years old with an allowance. We don't even give our kids an allowance. We just supply them with what they need. Yeah. I mean, parents help kids out. My parents still do stuff for us every once in a while. You know, we don't, I mean, we're not like sitting here hurting for money or anything. But when we did need, you know, 20 bucks for gas or something way back in the day, they had no problem shooting us $20 or something. But I paid them back. You always paid them back. He's not paying his parents back. Uh, it's just, again, it, it's how they were. It's easier to just kind of throw money at the problem than it is to sit down and deal with it. And Bill is not somebody they want to have to deal with because they know how he is. They know how he's going to be. I wouldn't want to have to fucking deal with him. So he's still going to get his $200 a month for a while. Uh, he was relieved to finally be back in Tangier, unfortunately. Much of that relief came from Yukadol, which he began using again as soon as he hit town. By Christmas 1954, Kiki had moved in with Bill, and they were looking for a bigger place so that Kiki could have more, could have a bed of his own and a place to store his things. Bill seemed to have now accepted that Tangier was his home. By the middle of January 1955, he had moved into a larger apartment in the Kasbah. Rock the, the cash box. Oh, don't sing. I sing "Rock the Casbah." Don't sing that Kiki song. I love. I know you and everybody else. You don't those, love it. It's one of those things that everybody loves and I hate. Let's have a Kiki. Yeah. Okay. Burroughs never cooked for himself, so he became very much a member of Tangier Cafe Society. It was out of this mix that the Naked Lunch was born. Despite his initial dislike of Tangier, Burroughs had begun writing almost as soon as he arrived. In May, by May 11th, he was able to write uh, Allen Ginsberg, include, include, enclosing the, quote, beginning of a novel. Ooh. Yeah. And two weeks later, later, he sent Kerouac a four-page text titled Dream of the City by William Lee. That's the pseudonym he went by usually as well, which is not a very good pseudonym. 
William Lee. I mean, you can kind of figure out who it is, especially if you're his family. But whatever. This was a routine. Again, sets and routines he likes to talk about. Based on a dream Kerouac had described about the huge overcrowded cities of the future. But it has some elements of the narrow winding alleys of the Medina where Bill was living and the visions he had of a multi-leveled city looking at the clotheslines and pulleys on the fire escapes behind Allen Ginsberg's building in the Lower East Side a few months before. Ginsberg later retitled the work Iron Rack Dream, but it was not finally published until it was included in Interzone. That same day, May 24th, 1954, Bill sent Allen a, quote, routine about purple-ass baboons and Tangier miscellanea. Purple-ass baboons. This was, of course, the celebrated Roosevelt after inauguration that Lawrence Ferlinghetti's English printers, Villers Publication, found so disturbing that they insisted it be removed from the Yahe letters. City Lights eventually published it as a separate text in 1979. More sections of The Naked Lunch emerged. So when you have something that's so horrible that they have to take it out of a book that's specifically about him trying to get a psychedelic drug and trying to make love to a man who doesn't want to make love to him, it's got to be pretty fucking bad. Yeah, that... If you're reading any William S. Burroughs and you're saying, okay, that shouldn't be in there, that crosses a line, you're either, it's either really fucking bad or you're not reading the rest of his fucking book because it can't be one or the other. Or you're more of a prude than I am. Uh, I don't think you'd have to be super prudish to be embarrassed at some of the stuff that he writes. Like, I'd be okay with it, but I can, I can handle a lot of shit that some people can't well you're weird yeah stuff like that doesn't bother me i mean i'm weird too but on a different level because if you were doing this you wouldn't have picked him to do a story on because you wouldn't want to have to talk about all this stuff didn't bother me in fact one of the reasons i picked it is so i could see your reaction half the time which i wish uh, we don't do a uh a traditional youtube type thing where people could see us but if you could see her you most of the time she has a pretty disgusted or surprised look on her face yeah. <laughs> so in May, Bill tried yet again to kick junk. He was treated by Dr. Apfel in the clinic in Marchand. It was an unpleasant cure. Bill was knocked out for four days with huge doses of sedatives, Thorazine, barbiturates, chlorohydrate, used in rotation to keep him, semi, keep him in a semi-conscious state, followed by just going cold turkey. He lost 30 pounds, which is a lot for somebody who's already heroin thin. He told Alan that he had, quote, a substantial case of the horrors, and days later was still sick and sensitized to the point of hallucination. Quote, everything looks sharp and different, like it was just washed. Sensation hit like tracer bullets. Junk is death. I don't ever want to see it or touch it or commerce in it. How long do you think that lasts? A day. How longer than a day? Two days. Yeah. But he... <laughs> okay, well, so this was in May. He did not have enough self-control, and by the beginning of July, he was using again. Oh, so he lasted a month. Uh, a couple months. Quote, after that awful cure, it's really heartbreaking to find myself hooked again. So he knew. He knew. He wasn't one of these people that were 
oh, it, it's not a problem. I'm I'm fine. He knew that he had a problem. Yeah. It was it was all on he didn't have the willpower to really he could do something about it, but he didn't have the willpower to see it through it's, for good. It's like it's that old adage, once an addict, always an addict. Yeah. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Yeah. And people hate when other people say that, but really you are. You you never recover from being an alcoholic. Well, you and it never really de- re- it, Yeah, and it really depends on the type of personality you have. William S. Burroughs has a very addictive, obsessive personality. Once he starts getting into something, he obsesses over it. He has a very addictive personality. Once he starts doing something, he wants to continue to do it. Like my father drank for years. You could say he was an alcoholic for many years. And then one day he just decided to stop. Same with smoking. He smoked for forever. Then one day he decided to stop. Never touched the stuff again. I've seen, I mean, he. I know he, they have alcohol in their house and I know he's had a drink, but he's not one of those that, well, I'll have a drink and then I got to have another one. I got to have another one. And it all kicks back up. He can have a drink and then be fine and not need another one for however long he wants to go with that one. So it all, it, yes, once you're an alcoholic, you're always an alcoholic. I completely agree. But there are people who have the type of personality or the willpower, whatever you want to call it, that they can get back, they can do that one thing one more time and it doesn't turn back into a habit, which is kind of astonishing because that's not how most people work. Right. And it's definitely not how William S. Burroughs works. Once he starts something again, he's all in. So things got so bad with Bill's addiction that he had to consider entering a clinic for a cure. Critical point came in the middle of September when he got a hold of some ampules and each containing one-sixth grain of dolaphine and one-hundredth grain of hyosin. I fucking hate the medical. I love the medical community, but please just just make your words easier. He shot six amples in the main line. He was found by Dave Woolman. 2 a.m., sitting in the hallway, stark naked, on a toilet seat, which would had, which had been pulled off the toilet, playing with a bucket of water, and singing, Deep in the heart of Texas. <laughs> Dude was stoned out of his oh, he gore. Was, he was, well, was, uh, I don't know if I'd call him stoned. Stoned, I, I, I hear stoned, and I immediately think, like, you know, just kind of grooving on some weed. He was fucking tripping balls. He tore up his sheets and threw bottles out of his room looking for something and attempting to go out of the street, but was restrained. Quote, what a horrible nightmare if I had succeeded and came to myself, came to myself wandering around the native quarter naked. David Woolman and Tony Dutch, another one of their friends, were hugely relieved to find him fully dressed and in his right mind the next morning as they had worried that this might have been permanent. They were really scared that he had taken so many drugs that he was just going to be like this forever, just naked and wandering around, stealing apparently stealing people's toilet seats. Yeah, because you take drugs and it stays in your system forever. Well, well it doesn't stay in your system forever, but there's a lot of drugs that fucks your brain up for the rest of your life. Well, yeah. We've both met plenty of crackheads and meth heads that are no longer... Uh, prosperous people very true so very true he had found a doctor to treat him and booked him in a room in the bechamel hospital where he had his own room for two dollars a day and was permitted to use his new portable typewriter one of these rooms was called salvador hassan 
the origins of Hassan's rumpus room in Naked Lunch. Pages of the book were piling up, almost all inspired by Tangier. This time the cure appeared to work because Bill's sex drive reasserted itself. Quote, figure to start at one end of Interzone and screw my way through to the other. Oh my gosh. Inevitably, Bill drifted back into addiction. By now, Kiki realized that his situation with Bill with, was unattainable. One day he'd be off drugs and his sex drive would be through the roof and he'd be paying Kiki for sex left and right. The next day, he's addicted. No sex drive. Well, he's not going to pay Kiki. Well, I mean, he still gives Kiki money, but Kiki can see that this isn't going to last long. Is If he doesn't need sex, he's going to stop paying me eventually. Bill was taking huge amounts of junk, had little money left over to give him, so Kiki met a Cuban band leader. It doesn't say in here if it's Ricky Ricardo. I want to think it is. I, I know it's. I know it's not, but the second I read it, 1950, 1950s Cuban band leader? Hmm. It's not Ricky Ricardo. Wouldn't it be fun if it was Ricky Ricardo? You think Ricky Ricardo's going to get messed up in all that shit? Well, okay, so he met the Cuban band leader who came through Tangier, and it was a better opportunity, so Kiki left with him. Bill didn't blame him. Kiki began playing drums in the band, which was made up of mostly women. Uh, this ended up being a bad thing. The band leader, I'm going to still say it's Ricky Ricardo, found him in bed with one of the women in a hotel. The beginning of September 1957, Bill told Ginsburg, quote, Poor Kiki was murdered last week in Madrid by that shit of a Cuban singer. The guy killed him for sleeping with his bandmate. So, yeah, I don't think that was Ricky Ricardo. Agree to disagree. <laughs> you think Lucille Ball's husband killed Kiki? Might have been Lucille Ball. I love Lucy. <laughs> No pun intended. Many puns intended. I, I don't do anything without a pun being intended. <laughs> nothing nothing for me just happens like that. I have to work on it. Kiki remained in Bill's thoughts for the rest of his life, transformed into one of his characters. We're never told Kiki's real name. The only hit comes, hint comes from a line in Nova Express which suggests that his family name was Henrique, which from came his nickname Kiki. So Kiki wasn't even his real name. That we know of. Could have been, but I doubt it. Could have been a loving nickname. Yeah. At the end of February 1956, he told Ginsburg, quote, Taking so much, I keep going on the nod. Last night I woke up with someone squeezing my hand. It was my other hand. <laughs> Don't you ever do that? You're like, what the fuck's touching me? And you look down, it's yourself. I, I mean, I do that, like, with the hair falling down, and it's hushed my leg, and it feels like a bug crawling on me. I'm like, what the fuck? And it, oh, it's the hair. His father insisted on making the arrangements at a cure center in London to ensure that Bill followed through. And finally, in the middle of April, Bill set out for, sent out, set out for England. Bill was immediately referred, referred to Dr. John Yerbury Dent, the author of Anxiety and Its Treatment because he had a, such a good rate of success with addicts. Bill was sent to nearby nursing home at 100 Cromwell Road. Again, very English. The withdrawal from opiates meant that he was unable to sleep for five days and nights and went from 30 grains of morphine a day 
to zero in seven days. That's harsh. Yeah, it's quite the the reduction. Dent said, quote, you'll sleep when you're ready to sleep. You couldn't give him any sleeping pills to knock his ass out? I don't think they didn't. I don't think they wanted him to have anything addictive in his system. Bill, William S. Burroughs takes a sleeping pill, finds out how, how good it feels to pass out whenever he wants to. Then he becomes addicted to sleeping pills. Yeah, true. You can't give this guy anything that has anything addictive to it. On release from the nursing home, Bill stayed in, the rooming, in a rooming house, which became one of <clears throat> Burroughs' sets, appearing in the cities of the Red Knight and in his dreams. Burroughs formed a long-standing friendship with Dent, who he, who he described as, quote, the least paranoid of men. He had the full warmth and goodwill, the best the English can offer. September 16th, 1956, he was back in Tangier, and apparently clean, mostly. <laughs> Around midday, he would take Mahjong, a hash candy that he learned how to make on his own. Apparently, it was very good. Everybody loved it. And he would begin writing. He mo- Most of the stuff he writes in Tangier is completely on Mahjong, this hash candy that he makes. I mean, he it's part of his diet. Generally, he would take a lot of Mahjong every other day, alternating with smoking a lot of pot on his days off. He wrote through until the evening drink. He wrote through until the evening drink and would sometimes take a little notebook with him to dinner and write down a few ideas, which he would type out after dinner. It was a period of tremendous outpouring of material. Quote, I'm really writing Inner Zone now, not writing about it. Good for him. Dave Woolman, who lived next door, and Eric Gifford, who was on the other side, said that they could hear his strange, wild laughter through the doors. He would sit hunched over at his typewriter, pounding the keys furiously, hair tousled, often crackling with laughter at his own routines, throwing the pages out onto the floor as they came out of the carriage where the sea breeze would sometimes blow them out into the garden through an open door. And that's where the, the chickens and everything would get to him, peck at him and shit on him and everything, and his friends all had to go out and pick him up. One of the revelations that came to Bill in his junk-free state was how he now was that he now found how emphatically he disproved of stealing or any criminal activities carefully distinguished between criminal acts and illegal acts. He despised crimes against property and against the person of others. Quote, and I used to admire gangsters. Good God. So he did a complete 180. So being off drugs, because marijuana is not a drug. It's a, it's a drug because it alters your state of mind, but it's not something that's going to make you into a, turn you into a fiend. Right. It's better than alcohol. Yes. So, being sober. Mostly. Mostly. He's still doing a lot of hash candy. <laughs> well, hash is marijuana. Well, no. Hash is hash. But yeah, I mean, the, the two aren't exactly the same. But they're close. They're from the same plant. Yeah, but the, the, the process of getting them. Or do, marijuana isn't near as potent as hash. So, hash hash is worse of the two. So, he was doing one really bad one. Every other day, and one not so bad one every other day. So he wasn't completely. Sober. So, so he was because he was sober somewhat. Sober ish. Sober ish. He was like, oh, so criminals are bad now. Yeah, pretty much. He's <laughs> like, God, all these people doing exactly what I used to do. They're just horrible. 
again. How could I ever think that was cool? He's just one of the worst fucking people. <laughs> he really is. Anyway, he was also turning into an all-persuasive spiritual atmosphere in Tangier and made the surprising confession, quote, My religious conversion, now complete, I am neither a Muslim, which he spelled with an O instead of a U, nor a Christian, but I owe a great debt to Islam and could have never made my connection with God anywhere but here. And I realize how much of Islam I have absorbed by osmosis without spitting a word of their appalling language. So, <laughs> Hold on. Wow. I will get to that when I uh, have a free moment. He absorbed their religion well, he through absorbed, osmosis. I think he's saying it was more the culture than the religion. Um, but, but is still racist as fuck. Yeah, he calls their language appalling. Yeah. Which it's one of the oldest languages on earth. Yeah. So really it's our language that's the appalling one. Yeah. Dude's got some issues. Well, by mid February nineteen fifty seven, Bill was writing, quote, The Word, a long prose poem of such Mahjong inspired density that most people found it unreadable. <clears throat> Two weeks earlier he had revealed, quote, I have been hitting the Mahjan pretty heavy of late, and it showed. He edited the word down severely, but only a few pages of it finished up in Naked Lunch. Unlike most of the routines from Tangier, most of which entered the book more or less intact as written. So this was one of the only ones that he had to edit because nobody understood what the fuck he was talking about. Because he's high on hash. So if you're out there and you're high on hash, thanks for listening. And nobody understands what the fuck you're talking about. Well, maybe you have to be high on hash to understand what he was saying. Yeah, it's like uh, listening to Pink Floyd Stone and listening to Pink Floyd Not Stone. When you're stoned, it makes a lot more sense. Or At least I've been told. Or watching any Kevin Smith movie, Stone versus Not Stone. But Kevin Smith movies make sense when you're not stoned. They're yeah, still funny. But they're they're better when you're stoned. I wouldn't know. I know you wouldn't, but, but I But you would. <laughs> uh, yeah. Fair my, enough. My teenage years, uh, yeah. Yeah, teenage years, yeah. While Bill, <laughs> while Bill was writing, he would double up on laughter, then throw the page over his shoulder, leaving Jack Kerouac to pick it up. The floor was littered with pages of manuscript covered in his spidery handwriting. I feel you. I have spidery handwriting. He no, told you Ker- have chicken scratches. He told Kerouac, quote, I'm shitting out my educated Midwest background once and for all. It's a matter of catharsis where I say the most horrible things I can think of. By the time I finish this book, I'll be pure as an angel, my dear. Jack was a fast, accurate typist but and offered to help type up Bill's manuscript, but found but found himself, let's say, changed by the process. You know, Bill Bill wrote the type of stuff that once you read it, you're not quite the same after you read it, and Jack was really starting to feel that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, I could see that. Yeah. By March 23rd, 1957, Allen Ginsberg and Peter Arvlovsky arrived. The excitement was too much for Bill, who quickly became very drunk. He began waving his machete about until Alan told him to stop because he was frightening everybody. Then Alan Anson 
arrived from Venice to help him with typing Alan number three. On April 5th, Jack left Ch- Tangier. He didn't like it there. Jack Jack didn't want to live anywhere outside the United States. He was too far away from his mom. Oh, yeah, he's a mom's boy. He's a boy. big mom's boy. Most days, Alan and Alan would spend five or six hours working on Bill's manuscript. See? Fucking Alan's get confused. Continuing the sterling work done by Jack Kerouac, who was an amazing typist, and he did work the stuff out better so people could read it. By late May, they had completed over 200 pages of Interzone, as the book was still called. Bill had liver trouble and had stopped drinking. He also cut out Mahjong. The manuscript gradually took shape, and by June 11, 1957, one Allen Ginsberg and Peter finally left to begin their exploration of Europe, it was ready to offer to a publisher. Bill had planned to join Ginsburg and Orlovsky in Spain at the end of June, but by the time he got to Madrid, after his first visiting after first visiting Barcelona, which he hated, they were already with Anson in Venice. Bill managed a half hour in the Prado, but spent most of his time lying in a curtained room, laid up by his miser- mystery illness. He could not even drink one glass of wine without feeling sick. He went straight from Madrid to London to the only doctor he could trust, Dr. Dent. Dent ran a series of tests and determined that he had multiple, that he had a mild, atypical form of hepatitis, and that there was nothing wrong with his liver. Bill found London dull as ever, and rather than go to Venice, he decided first visit Kells Elvin in Copenhagen, and then join Allen Ginsberg in Paris on his way back to Tangier. Bill arrived in the Danish capital at the end of July 1957 and booked into the hotel in the center. He was gathering material for his book, Thick and Fast. He told Ginsburg, quote, Copenhagen is looking up. I am engaged in the most curious affair with a young man whose face was destroyed in an accident and completely rebuilt by plastic surgery. His pre-surgery picture is as beautiful as I've ever seen, and he looks just like a copy, but no life in his face. In fact, I think he died in the accident. Oh, that's, that's fucked up. He's fucked up. The visit gave rise to Carl the Joselito and the examination section and the idea of Dr. Benway's reconditioning center. Scandinavia itself was, of course, Freeland. Freeland had provided the missing set. Naked Lunch had four sets, inspired by Burroughs' life experience. One was Interzone, based on his four years in Tangier. Another was the whole of South America, all of the centipede cults and Mexican imagery gathered in the jungles of his years in Mexico City. The third was the United States, both the good old boys in Texas and the years in New York City as a junkie and rolling drunks. He had only been in Scandinavia for a month, but he gave it, it gave him what he needed. It marked a turning point when the book began to gel into a hole. He told Allen Ginsberg, quote, I have always felt that the manuscript to date was in a, set, a sense notes for a novel rather than a novel itself. By mid-September, after a brief eight-hour stopover in Paris, he was back in Tangier, where he was delighted to find that his old room at the Murina was still available. He decided that the queer and Yahe letters had no place in Inner Zone and should be published as separate works. The Naked Lunch was finally taking shape. Bill's two months away had broken the spell of Tangier. The biggest change occurred in London, where he found himself again questioning his homosexuality. Mm. He told Allen Ginsberg, quote, 
I feel myself closer and closer to the resolution of my queerness, which would involve a solution of that illness. For such, it is a horrible sickness, at least in my case. I have just experienced emergency of my non-queer persona as separate personality. This started in London, where in a dream, I came into a room to see myself, not as a child, but adolescent, looking at me with hate. So I said, I don't seem to be exactly welcome. And he said, not welcome? I hate you. And with good reason, too. Suppose you had kept the non-queer young boy in a straitjacket of flesh 25 years, subject to continual queer acts and talk. Would he love you? I think not. Anywho, I'm getting to know the kid, and we're getting on better. I tell him we can take over. I tell him he can take over at any time. But there's somebody else in this deal not yet fully accounted for, and the kid's not up to deal with him. So I have to stay around for the present. Actually, of course, the kid and all the rest of us have to arrange a merger. Bill's heterosexual aspect was the impetus for Benway's reconditioning center and the Naked Lunch, the center you go to uh, the the gay cure, pretty much is what it was. Your Part gift. of his schizophrenia, he's starting to get multiple personalities. Uh, he said it was a dream, but that, that this kid's living inside, this adolescent is living inside him, a straight adolescent is living inside his queer body, and uh, he's just waiting for him to take over. He never does. Uh, I don't know. That's, that's... By November 10th, he reported that he was unable to interest himself in boys anymore, the words, however, continue to pour out, pour out of him. He now had a structure, an American section, a long South American section, Scandinavia, and Inner Zone, with material switching back and forth between them. With nothing but marijuana, no alcohol, no junk, Bill was engaged in a form of self-analysis. He was determined to get to the bottom of his childhood trauma involving Nursey, that he had felt distorted his sexuality and shaped his life. So again, he's blaming Nursey for his all his you know, queerness. <laughs> Instead of writing all the time, he now spent each afternoon sitting on his bed in quiet contemplation, seeing no one. He told Ginsburg that he became aware of his existence. He became aware of the existence of, quote, a benevolent, a benevolent sentient center to the whole creation that gave him the courage to dispassionately examine his entire life, including his obsession with Ginsburg. He wrote to Allen, the whole trauma is out now. Such horror in bringing it out, I was afraid my heart would stop. He said he didn't want boys anymore. Couldn't make it. Quote, must have some cunt. I was never supposed to be queer at all. Fucking hell. <laughs> this was when he first identified that Nursey made him suck her, her boyfriend's cock or her best friend's boyfriend's cock. And when he wrote the section of Word about... Quote, nature's little white soldiers, teeth, that he used to bite it, having brought the event to consciousness, Bill now wanted to move to Paris, not just to work on the book with Alan, but to see a psychoanalysis and clear up his psychic blocks that remained. So he wants to go get some help, which is nice. Suddenly, Tangier was dull. Bill told Alan he was sick of Tangier and everybody in it. Bill booked his plane seat. And that's going to be an ongoing thing where he moves somewhere, he loves it, and then, you know, a little while longer, he goes to visit somewhere, and all of a sudden he loves that place, and he hates the place he's at. So, he'll do this many times. He sounds like a fucking weirdo. 
And not in a good way. Yeah. After working with Bill and Tangier, Allen Ginsberg and Peter Rovlovsky explored Europe. They reached Paris on September 13th and went straight to Madame Rochot's hotel at 9. Um, this is a French word. I'm going to fuck it up and I apologize. At 9 Rue Get Les Cures, this will be known as the famous Beat Hotel. Mm -hmm. So if you ever heard of the Beat Hotel, this is it. This is where shit goes down and writings happen. And Bill got to Paris January 16th, 1958. He needed to be in the cultural center. Tangier was still pleasant but becoming problematic as he felt it was he was atrophying there. He had changed the novel, added new sections, wanted to work with Alan to finish it and hopefully find a publisher. He had made great strides with his self-analysis and wanted to consolidate these by working with a trained therapist. Mark Schlumberger... <clears throat> yeah, was well-respected Freudian and agreed to take Bill on. Burroughs signed up for twice-a-week sessions. His parents agreed to pay the $10 per visit. Of course, has to get Mommy and Daddy to pay for it, even though he's giving getting a fucking $200 a month allowance. Why? <laughs> that just... You're... You're over 40 now. I understand them wanting the help to pay for it because it's their son and he obviously needs... The psychiatric Psychiatric help. help. But the allowance just kills me. It, does. it really does. Because when Alan and Peter reached Paris, Peter received news from home that he had to leave the day after Burroughs arrived. They both worried that Bill had come to claim Alan, and after kissing Peter goodbye at the station, Alan fell into a deep depression. But Bill and Alan had a serious talk. Alan told Bill how stressed and miserable he felt and revealed how anxious he was about Bill's arrival. Bill carefully explained the changes he had been going through in Tangier during the last month, the last few months of 1957. He explained that his trip to Paris was not to claim Alan, but to visit him and to also see an, an, an analyst to clear up any psychoanalytic blocks left over. They talked until about 3 a.m. Alan told Peter they, quote, got into tremendous rapport, very delicate, almost trembled. They discussed sex, Alan's willingness to have sex with Burroughs, even though he really didn't want to, and Bill finally understood his feelings. Alan wrote that Bill, quote, has stopped entirely putting pressure on me for bed. The whole nightmare cleared up overnight. Bill explained his meditation techniques and how he battled his demons. Despite all this, Burroughs recognized that there was something beneath all this that he could not get at, something powerful to do with his early trauma with his nurse. Whenever he got near it, he would experience such a feeling of fright that prickles ran up his neck, and he was afraid to continue, afraid that some horrible ghost would break through into consciousness, a memory of something so horrible that he had suppressed it all his life. He was hoping Schlumberger could help him reach it. So, I mean, it's good that he, he sees that in himself. I, thought, I, I think it's kind of BS, though. I think he still wants to bone... Ginsburg. Well, I mean, at this point, he's not. He doesn't really want boys. He doesn't see himself as queer right now. Yeah, but that could just be, he's BSing himself. <laughs> Unlike his early days in Tangier, Burroughs had dropped right into the middle of a ready-made social scene. Alan's get Alan Ginsburg, Peter Oblosky, and Gregory Corso were already installed in the hotel and all living together in. Chamber 25 on the third floor and had gotten to know dozens of the hotel residents as well as many of the British and American expats and students living in the neighborhood. 
Bill enjoyed being around these young people, most of whom were in their early 20s. Alan wrote Peter, quote, Bill thinks a new American generation will, will be hip and will slowly change things, laws, and attitude. He had hoped there for some redemption in America, finding its soul. So he, he's putting all his cards in this new, young 1950s, early 1960s generation to change things in America. Hey, all you book people. Do you love wrestling? Do you hate wrestling? Well, I got the podcast for you. I know it's not real, but that had to hurt is a podcast Stephanie and I do on all the things we love and hate about wrestling today. Get a viewpoint from people who are strictly fans and live outside the industry. So go to audioparfait.com, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Irving Rosenthal, editor of the Chicago Review, published an extract from The Naked Lunch in the spring of 1958 issue, and in May wrote that he liked it so much they would publish it serially if no one else would. Allen typed up a chapter for him. Good to his word, Rosenthal published Chapter 2 of Naked Lunch in the autumn 1958 issue. By the end of May, he was back on pejoric and addicted again. Yeah, see, he... He talks a big game, but he's full of shit. He just he, he can't get out of his own way. Uh, at the end of October 1958, Bill ran into Brian Jensen. Bill had some pot to sell and muttered, "Want to score?" They began talking and suddenly found they had much in common. Bill suggests that he moved into the Beat Hotel. Brian was a poet, a novelist, biographer, artist, photographer multimedia performer and restaurant tour, but is ultimately best known for his paintings. Burroughs was fascinated by Brian's stories and was drawn close to him, becoming a lifelong friend and collaborator. Burroughs began to spend much of his free time watching him paint. Burroughs began drawing glyphs himself, showing the obvious influence of Jisson. With regards to his writings, he said he was completely dissatisfied with all the work he had done to date with the whole medium, quote, unless I can reach a point where my writing has the danger and immediate urgency of bullfighting, it is nowhere, and I must look for another way. So every time he meets a new person, he wants his writing to change. He's Oh, yeah, his per with his personality, he's completely swayed by other people. Every I mean, it, he's obsessive. He's completely consumed by whatever else is going on. It's like, oh, well, I'm doing this. But if this person's doing that, well, that's got to be better than what I'm doing. Yeah, he. It's like, it changes his personality yeah. based on who he meets. And it's ridiculous. He, he doesn't know how to be himself. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Well, now now we're coming into more of the uh, occulty, spiritual, psychic type shit. That November, Burroughs bought himself a keychain with a small stainless steel ball on the end from a magic shop and hung it up in his room as a decoration. Seeing it, Brian introduced Bill to the idea of using crystal balls for scrying a magic technique in which you focus your attention on a shining surface, such as a mirror or crystal ball, until a vision appears. At least 20 minutes were needed for a beginner. To descry means to make out dimly or to reveal. Brian stared hard into Bill's stainless steel ball and into its surface saw a Muslim funeral 
with crowds of mourners on the streets of Tangier. Bill tried it and saw the same thing. <laughs> they sought out all the information they could on scrying and quickly moved on to using a mirror. Brian, quote, we did a great deal of a great deal of lengthy mirror gazing at that time. We felt that we had all the time in the world to give to such explorations, and we did see some strange stuff, just like they always said we would. Thus began one of the most intense periods of activity of Burroughs' entire stay in Europe. He told Ginsburg that the events of December were, quote, complex and fantastic, to point where coverage is difficult, like covering events of ten crowded years, which is what feels like I have to do with this fucking story, cover every goddamn thing. In the course of one mirror-gazing session, Bill saw himself with completely inhuman hands, Thick, black, pink, fibrous, long, white tendrils grew from his curiously abbreviated fingertips as if the tips had been cut off to make room for the tendrils. Jerry Wallace, a 20-year-old boy from Kansas, sitting across the room, exclaimed in horror, My God, Bill, what's wrong with your hands? They're all thick and pink and something white growing out of the fingers. <laughs> I'm going to take a guess say that they were all just fucking high. Probably. But he says that they were just scrying. But, again, most of what we what we get from here are just stories being told by Bill. So you got to take everything kind of with a grain of salt. Yeah. A anytime and he says, oh, we saw the same thing or, or this person said this about me, you kind of have to, you know. Most of okay. his writings were done when he was high. And it, if... Things were similar that were seen. It was after somebody went before him, so he could just easily say, oh, I see it too. Yeah, I imagine there's probably a little bit of stuff being made up mm -hmm. here. But yeah. we, he's the only one we can go off of. You, they can't... He wasn't able to interview most of the people on here because pretty much everybody's dead by now. Yeah. So... Another time, sitting across the room from Jock Stern, Bill distinctly felt him touch his arm. Bill watched fascinated as Stern appeared to lose seven pounds in ten minutes when he took a shot of heroin for the first time in a week. According to Burroughs, the muscles that the body first builds, builds back when coming off junk is soft and ectoplasmatic and literally melts away at the first touch of junk. I don't think that's true. Uh, never done heroin. Uh, me either. The incident appeared in Naked Lunch, albeit slightly exaggerated. Burroughs and Jisson quickly involved fellow residents in their experiments. Their two main collaborators were Jock Stern and Sheldon Mac Thomas, usually referred to as Shell by Burroughs. Burroughs, Stern, Jisson, and Thomas all had the same vision of a coffin in a library. Jisson anxious to retain his leadership of the paranormal experiments, embarked on a 36-hour session gazing into the mirror on the door of his armoire. He sat lotus position on the bed, and his friends handed him food, cigarettes, and joints to keep him going. He saw scientists in 19th century labs, great battles, and chieftains of unknown races. After 24 hours, the images disappeared, and he wrote that, quote, there seemed it was a limited area that one could see only a certain distance into, well, where everything was covered with a gentle, palpitating cloud of smoke, which would be about waist high. That was the end. There was nothing beyond that. 
so you can look into the past, but just just until here. <laughs> then you're cut off. Yeah, until the you know the weed's gone, and <laughs> uh, then. Well, I don't think I don't think it'd be weed though. I think it'd have to be something. But see, Jensen didn't, never really did any hard drugs. He smoked weed, but he never really did any hard drugs. The rest of them did, but he didn't. So I think he's probably just lying about it. Every night, Bill and assorted residents went to Brian's room to watch all the weird psychic experiments that were occurring. Burroughs said, "Quote: It was a great period, a lot of fun, just a lot of fun." Things about that for me, about magic, that whole area of the occult. That's what it is. It's fun. Fun things happen. It's great. And none of it ever bothers me. You know, can't do, get too extreme. As far as, Bur- as far as Burroughs was concerned, they were breaking new ground and making important new discoveries. And it was all thanks to Brian. All they were doing was staring, was staring at a mirror yeah, or but a I'm, ball. I mean, you've been around like people who are high and they're talking and they're like, dude. That's a great idea, man. That'll change everything, man. It's pretty much all they were doing. That's not what it's like. I bet this just because I don't get high or never got smoked weed and got high doesn't mean I wasn't around people that were high. And yeah, sometimes it is like that. Depending on who you're with. Oh well, yeah. I mean they have to be a little bit on the idiot side to begin with. But still. It can get like that. I suppose. Which I'd rather be around people like that than drunk, but that's another discussion. One of the key findings in the experimentation for Burroughs was the identification of the ugly spirit and the concept of occupation and possession by spirits. Burroughs regarded the ugly spirit as a psychic entity into his being by a malevolent force. Shell decided to return to the United States. Bill was sorry to see him go because he already regarded himself as part of a triumvirate of mystical experiments. He was a part of the whole, he was a major part of the whole group of psychic bullshit. Yeah. And without him, they couldn't do everything that they had been doing. Sure they could. Well, Shell's departure coincided with Stern going into a Complete seclusion, not even answering letters, saying that the presence of people was painful for him. Jason, meanwhile, was having a paranoid episode, leaving Bill with no one. Bill thought that if Brian was afraid of him as, quote, a notorious carrier of black carrier of black fuzz, black luck, and death, he told Alan, quote, I continue to see visions and experience strange currents of energy. But the key, the one piece that can make it usable... Stern had part of it. So did Shell. Jison, more a catalyst or medium in strict sense, possibly Jison's ex- exclusion was because of the four of them, he was the only one not on hard drugs. Burroughs was down to 120 pounds. Again, Burroughs is not a short man. Burroughs is a tall man. Strung out and in ill health, two things happened to pull him out of his depression. The return of Jack Stern and Maurice Gerodius's change of mind over publishing The Naked Lunch. Although he periodically added new sections to The Naked Lunch, not a great deal had happened on the publishing front since Burroughs had arrived in Paris. The first thing Allen Ginsberg had done on arrival was show it to Gerodius, but he had turned it down. He returned it to Ginsberg and, re- and recalled, quote, It was such a mess, that manuscript. You couldn't physically read the stuff. 
the ends of the pages were all eaten away by rats or something, which they probably were. Then on October 25th, 1958, in the Saturday issue of the Chicago Daily News, columnist Jack Mabley, in a piece headed Filthy Riding on the Midway, fulminated against a magazine that he identified only as being published by the University of Chicago, calling it one of the foulest collections of printed filth I'd seen publicly circulated. It was obviously directed against the autumn edition of the Chicago Review, which opened with Chapter 2 of The Naked Lunch. The dean asked to see a list of contents for the upcoming winter issue. Among the pieces he objected to were 10 chapters from The Naked Lunch. After meeting with the review council, they decided that the winter issue could not be published as it stood and must be completely innocuous. Seven members of the staff resigned in protest. They resolved to publish the offending issue themselves, calling the new magazine Big Table. And there, it might have ended, except for a surprise intervention from an unlikely source. August Derleth, the first publisher of H.P. Lovecraft, read a review copy of Big Table, and was so offended by his contents that he contacted the postmarker in Chicago to get the magazine banned from the mails. This guy published H.P. Lovecraft, one of the worst racist horror writers ever, and this he was offended by. Yeah, that's kind of fucked up. I mean, who's worse, Lovecraft or Burroughs? Oh, Lovecraft. But what he writes about, Lovecraft. I mean, all you got rats in the walls. <laughs> all you got to do is read Rats in the Walls, and that tells you all that you need to know. Just the name of the cat and the fact that he he, he says that certain, uh, certain ailments and, and certain... Procedures can only be done on black people because they're not the same as white people. Lovecraft is worse than than Burroughs because Burroughs uses Burroughs brings up you know talks race says racist things every once in a while, but it's only when he gets super pissed off and it's just to piss the person off that he's talking to. He wasn't against Jews. He married a Jew to save her life, but when he was working at his parents' uh, landscaping business, he was he was saying anti-Semitic shit to one lady because she made him take the servants' entrance. So that's the only time he brings up. Anything like that. He's not really a racist when it comes down to it, but Lovecraft was completely. Hey guys, if you've been trying to grow out that beard, I know it took me a while to grow mine. Let me tell you about the people over at thebeardstruggle.com. They have the ultimate collection of beard growth and care products for guys who are just starting their beard journey and only have a little bit of stubble, all the way to men with glorious chin locks all the way down to their belly buttons. They use 100% natural ingredients never test on animals, and promise a 365-day money-back guarantee. And now, if you use my coupon code KevinY15 at checkout, you'll save an additional 15% off your order. So go to thebeardstruggle.com or use the link in our show notes and get everything you need to keep that face fur healthy. And don't forget the code KevinY15, that's K-E-V-I-N-Y-1-5 for 15% off today. Go. Now, Odin demands it. It got so bad that the American Civil Liberties Union got involved because, you know, banned shit from the mail. But at the time, the Comstock Act said that nothing vulgar could be transferred through federal mail. 
On May 30th, other magazines and newspapers began to take notice. Gerodius in Paris saw all the controversy being caused by the Naked Lunch and decided that now was the time to publish. You, you got to use any publicity you can get. Bad publicity is still publicity. Any publicity is good publicity is what they say. Moving swiftly, he dispatched, his, he dispatched his assistant, a young South African poet named Sinclair Beals, whom Burroughs had known in Tangier, to the Beat Hotel. He told Burroughs that Eurodius wanted the manuscript in two weeks to capitalize on the publicity generated by the court case and news articles. Brian Jusson and Alan Anson were summoned to do typing. When, galley, when the galleys came back from the printer, first Sinclair Beals looked, looked them through. Then Brian Jensen took a look and said, Why change the order at all? It's perfect. The only change that Burroughs made was to move the beginning to the end so that the policeman bookended the text. So the policeman at the very beginning or the same policeman at the very end. He already had the name, The Naked Lunch, ever since Ginsburg was reading aloud from the manuscript of Queer and misread Naked Lust for Naked Lunch. <laughs> and Kerouac identified it as a good name for a book. In July, Four weeks after Beals came knocking on his door, Gerodius had printed 5,000 copies, and it was on bookshelves. It rapidly became a cult book, smuggled through customs into London and New York, passed around until it was in tatters. Gerodius quickly printed a second run of 5,000. So, it's doing, doing well. It's a cult book, so it's kind of underground, but still, selling books. Ginsburg was convinced that Bill was going to be ripped off by Gerodius, which he had, which... He did, of course, do. But Bill told him, quote, I'm sure that the deal I made with Olympia was the best deal I could have made. I saw Jack fucking around five years with American book publishers. Gerodius gave him an $800 advance and took one-third of the foreign rights of the book, which was a very bad deal. But Burroughs didn't realize it at the time. He was very gratified to get a measure of recognition and be published after so many years and have the assurance that Olympia would publish other books. Barney Rossett bought the American rights for Grove Press, giving an advance of $3,000, but the book was not published until May 1962 because Grove had several other obscenity cases to win first, and he knew that he would have to defend that one in court as well. So he's already got stuff he's got to defend in court. He doesn't want to have to defend another one yet. Toward the end of May 1959, the American poet Harold Norris, or Norse, turned up in Paris intending to write a book. He sought out Burroughs at the Beat Hotel. Norse told him about Ian Somerville. Ian Somerville is a very important person in the life of William S. Burroughs, even though he's meeting him after he's 40. A young Englishman he had met at the Mistral Bookshop who was spending the summer in Paris to learn French, working at the bookshop in lieu of rent. He was studying mathematics at Cambridge and was very intelligent. Quote, the kid likes older guys, which is great for Burroughs. Somerville was just 18 years old. Burroughs, 45. Kind of gross. That's, yeah, that's very gross. Eh, to each his own. Burroughs asked for Ian's assistance in his latest attempt to cure his habit. It took eight days. Those eight days were a dramatic introduction into a new way of life, and Ian possibly never really recovered from it. He and Bill began a lifelong love affair, Ian's first real affair. Of course, he's only 18, so of course it is. They lived together. They were lovers. Bill introduced him to his friends, 
he and uh, Brian Jessen became close. Through Bill, Ian was introduced to the pleasures of hashish, the sinister writings of Paul Bowles, the world of avant-garde literature, and the attentions of the international bohemian crowd. Brian explained, explained surrealism, modern painting, and introduced him to the mysteries of the occult. Ian was completely taken up by this new life and determined to stay on in Paris with Bill and forget about his studies. He's getting ready to drop out of school. Fucking idiot. Burroughs was adamant that he should return to Cambridge to get his degree. So, at the end of the summer, Ian packed his bags and left while Bill made plans to visit him. So, he didn't go through with it. He stayed in, in Cambridge. So you can get into Cambridge for mathematics. Pretty big fucking deal. Yeah. Off junk, Bill now began to play a greater role in the life of the hotel. Burroughs carefully modified his image to fit his chosen role. He cultivated a mysterious, disconcerting aura. One, type of group of re- one time, a group of residents were sitting around in someone's room talking. Burroughs had remained silent the whole time. Then, in a lull in the conversation, he growled, quote, The most addicting drug of all is silence. The room went completely quiet. Stood up, walked slowly from the room. They sat in silence, listening to his footsteps down the curving staircase. Then, at the sound of the street door, they threw themselves at the window to watch him turn right, walk down the street, and disappear into the mist, swirling off into the, into the scene. This is how legends are born. <laughs> I can just imagine him saying that. And everybody just looks at him, he stands up, and just quietly walks out, and everybody's like, oh. And then they just peek their heads out the window and watch him walk down the street. Like That, that is fucking legend. That, that, that's, I mean, that's pretty baller right there. The incident likely occurred when Burroughs was working on, rub, <clears throat> working on the rub out the word section of the soft machine, which concerns itself with silence. By then, Burroughs was working with cut-ups. Now, you ask, what are cut-ups? Cut-ups is a very distinct way of writing, and it's confusing to many. It's not my bag, but he does it, so let's, uh, let's get more into it. Around lunchtime, the 1st of October, 1959, Brian was in room 25 of the Beat Hotel, cutting mounts for, draw- cutting mounts for drawings, slicing through mat boards with his Stanley knife, and simultaneously slicing through the pile of old copies of New York Herald Tribune he was using to protect his table. All right. When he finished, he saw that there were strips of newsprint were sliced, they peeled back, and the words on the next page showed through and could be read across, combining stories from different pages. You see where I'm going to see? Okay. He found some of the combinations so amusing that the people in the next room knocked on the door, concerned that he was having a hysteria attack. I mean, we all did this as kids. I did before. You know, take a newspaper, take a, a book or an old book or a newspaper or something, and you cut out words, and then you you, you read across in the next word something that completely doesn't go along with the sentence, but it's funny. Yeah. Burroughs writes entire books that way. That's kind of neat. It's not... It, <clears throat> That's where a lot of the weird names for books came from. And uh, he names all of his chapters. So that's where a lot of the weird chapter names come from, is him cutting shit up, 
putting giant putting a bunch of words into a bowl and just picking them out randomly. I have uh, magnets on the refrigerator. I know yeah. I do poems like that. Yeah. Burroughs had been to lunch with two reporters from Life magazine, and on his return, Brian excitedly show, showed him his discovery. Bill agreed that the results were amusing, but immediately recognized its importance as a technique and pronounced it to be a project for disastrous success. He could see that cut-ups literally enabled you to, quote, read between the lines and find out what newspapers were really saying. So this his, his uh, over-analysts, analyzing of things that comes into play with this cut us cut ups establish new connections between images and one's range of vision consequently expands i could see right away that all the possibilities of cut ups where you have one image you can have six out of that we made a number of experiments cut up my own text cut up other texts cut up the bible and shakespeare and the classics cut-ups held an obvious appeal to burroughs whose work was already fragmented the naked lunch with his lack of narrative or character development, its episodic presentation and random order of chapters, has sometimes been mistaken for cut-up text, even though it was written before their discovery. So naked lunch isn't a cut-up, even though it looks like it. Naturally, they wanted to share their discovery with everyone, and soon Gregory Corso and Sinclair Biles were engaged in cut-ups as well. Biles had been persuaded to move to the hotel by Brian, who thought that he really belonged there with them after his sterling work on getting naked lunch into print quote we cut up bits of books and put them in wooden bowl then we'd extract piece after piece and put them together the result was minutes to go the book was published april 13 1960 with a large launch party at the bookshop cut-ups were launched to the world so not only is he kind of innovative in his writing but he literally they literally invent a new way of writing books and I learned about that in school. Did you? Yeah. I don't remember learning about that. I just remember doing it. And creative like, writing. Yeah. We did that. Cut-ups. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That all comes and from Brian and, and, and Bill. Created it. I mean, other people, I'm sure, had done it before, but never put it in an actual book. They actually wrote books this way. Even before Minutes to Go was published on December 24th, 1959, a second batch of material called The Exterminator was sent to David Hasselwood at the Arhan Press in San Francisco. At the time, Burroughs appeared to have seen it more as a bulletin or a magazine than as a book. He told Hasselwood, quote, I enclose first issue of The Exterminator, which will appear from time to time in response to civic needs. So kind of like an editorial almost. It would appear that the exterminator was originally minutes was originally minutes to go volume two. The final form of the exterminator consists mostly of blocks of cut up prose by Burroughs. Toward the end of the book, Brian experiments by replacing the words "rub out the words" quote "rub out the words" mm -hmm. by the typewriter symbols percent sign, dollar sign, ampersand, and pound sign. This was an experiment that Burroughs later appropriated for himself. The Exterminator ends with four pages of Brian's calligraphic drawings in which words have been replaced by glyphs. Oh. So the last four pages of the entire book is just symbols. Good luck knowing what those mean with no cipher. I wonder if anybody tried to break the cipher. It was more than likely it was just gibberish anyway. Probably. But. He moved to the Empress Hotel in London at 25 Lily Road, 
was in northeast Fulham toward the end of April 1960. It was to be his headquarters for the next year on and off for some time afterwards. Not long before, Bill had sworn he would never visit London again, and now he changed his mind. Quote, I love London. It was very cheap. Of course, because he wasn't paying for it. Well, he tried to get Brian to join him there. He wrote Brian, quote, London is much better deal, deal than Paris. Believe me, the best thing I ever did was get out of Paris and come here. The Beat Hotel experiments continued with Brian and Ian at the Empress. Burroughs worked, seated at his typewriter for hours on end, and during his first six months at the Empress, produced about 2,000 pages of cut-ups and material for Nova Express as it was then called, and Towers Open Fire. This was also a period of intense tape cut-up activity, particular cut-ups surrounding the so-called last words of Hassan-e-Sabah, the founder of the Order of the Assassins. Ooh. Uh-huh. Yeah, he does a lot of stuff. I didn't cover that much of, of him, but he, they, they talk about him a lot. A lot. I didn't cover much about him, but like that was pretty much it. But they talk about him a lot. They love him. So look him up, because that's interesting. A little out there. Allen Ginsberg sent him some mescaline from the States, where it was legal, but he did not like it. Yahe was the only psychedelic he liked, even though it was much stronger. There was also a new method of altering consciousness at the time. Ian Somerville had now more or less perfected his, his design for a flickering machine. On December 21st, 1958, Brian said his experience, he experienced a spontaneous hallucination as his bus was passing through an avenue of trees. The regularly spaced trunks had produced a strobe, uh, uh, like a strobe effect. Yeah. They interrupted the sunlight on Brian's eyes, approximating the 8 to 14 hertz oscillation of alpha, alpha rhythms, which can cause hallucinations. Brian intrigued, but was not until Burroughs met Ian Somerville that he found an explanation for it and was able to reproduce it. For Ian, the problem was quite simple. There was undoubtedly many ways to create a strobe flickering effect at between 8 and 13 cycles a second, but he came up with the simplest, a record player with a tone arm removed, a light bulb, and cardboard cylinders with holes cut in it. On February 15, 1960, he wrote to Brian from Cambridge saying he had made a sl simple flicker machine. Using Ian's instructions, Brian constructed a flicker machine, which he called a dream machine, later changing it to one word, dream machine. So if you ever heard of a dream machine, this is where it came from. We've seen those in, like, some scary movies. Yeah. They create... Ian Somerville invented it. Huh. Yeah. Burroughs spent hours sitting... Eyes closed in front of the spinning cylinder and mentioned the dream machine in both The Ticket That Exploded and Nova Express. It also features heavily in the cut-ups the film he made with Anthony Balk. So, yeah, he makes a movie with a guy, calls the cut-ups based on, you know, cut-ups. Late September, a teenage boy of about 17 presented himself at the Empress. This was Mikey Portman, a fan who had read Naked Lunch and wanted to meet its author. Bill thought he was fantastically attractive and invited him in. He came from a very wealthy family. Mikey came into a trust fund for life, enough to mean he'd never had to work. 
Mikey was slovenly and irresponsible. He was very selfish, greedy, and weak. He was undisciplined. He couldn't do anything for himself. He never cleaned up. He never knew what it was like to do anything. He would borrow clothes and money, never return or repay them. Cabs were left outside, forgotten about and unpaid. Holes burnt in expensive carpets. Checks bounced. The problem was, Mikey couldn't take a hint. He lashed himself on to his current object of fascination and would not go away. He hung about Bill for years at the Empress, at the Beat Hotel, and in Tangier. He was gay, and he and Bill became lovers. Very briefly, quote, in an unsatisfactory way because he just didn't like anyone who wasn't black. He was into black guys. Oh. Yeah. And Bill wasn't black. Bill's not. No, he's about as white as they get. Ian didn't like him. He, Ian, who was dirt poor, thought that Mikey had every opportunity and had bungled them all. He had made nothing of his life. Bill, however, was clearly flattered by his disciple who imitated his every action. If Bill had meant tea, Mikey would have one too. He walked like Bill and ordered the same meals as him in restaurants. Bill was obviously a father surrogate, but he was prepared to take on the role. Mikey wanted to be like Bill in every way, and in October 1960, he too was making cut-ups. Oh, you guys are doing, I can do that too. Can I try, daddy? You know that's how it was. He saw, he saw them doing it. He's like, I can do it. Burroughs acknowledged two collaborations with Michael in The Ticket That Exploded, uh, in The Strange Bed, and The Black Fruit sections of The Ticket That Exploded. Uh, Bill said, quote, he'd written this thing. wasn't too bad. So I included it. Although he was not a lover, except for briefly, Mikey joined the pantheon of friends and characters who inhabited Bill's dreams. That October, Bill ran short of money. He had to sell his tape recorder and move to Cambridge in order to economize. He said he found the dreaming spires of Cambridge more congenial for work than the bustle of London. So now he likes Cambridge more than London. He rented a large room contain, containing a sofa and a narrow bed for four pounds a week, including a full English breakfast, which, oh, I love a full English breakfast, on Mary Street overlooking the market. It was in this room, looking out over the awnings of the market stalls, that Bill got his idea of color separation. Not, I, I, not race color separation. I gathered. Of, the spectrum of color of light separation. The idea of categorizing one's observations by color was used as the organization feature in his next book, The Soft Machine, which is a divided into four sections, each given a color theme. Hmm. I used to do that when I was a kid. But when I was a kid, everything was, you, there was good stuff and there's bad stuff. So the greens and the blues were good and the oranges and the reds were bad and I'd have them fight. I played with crayons. I don't know, crayons and Ninja Turtles, those are my thing. Don't give me that look. I ate orange crayons when I was in kindergarten. I didn't eat them. No, I did. Did you eat them because they were the bad crayons? No, I ate them because they were orange and I thought they'd taste like oranges. Did they? No. That's a shame. You should have gone. You should have waited a, a little bit and gone for the uh, the markers that smelled like the fruit. Yeah, but I was in love with the orange 
um, Michelangelo, the orange name. Oh, yeah, he's my favorite. I was, I was in love with him. I was a Michelangelo guy. Still am. The locals claimed that there were supposedly no hills between Cambridge and the Urals on the eastern edge of Russia to stop the icy wind and rain that lashed the city in winter. Bill believed them, and in December decided he couldn't stand the weather much longer and moved back to Paris to the comfort of the Beat Hotel. Burroughs stayed in Paris until March 15, 1961, where he flew to Tangier, telling Ginsburg, quote, I want to get out of Paris. I want to get out of Paris as quick as possible. Don't like it? Never did. In Tangier, he checked into his old garden room at the Muneria. Burroughs and Brian had now extended cut-ups beyond tapes and collage into the realm of personal relations. Burroughs now suspected that the entire fabric of reality was an illusion and that someone or something was running the universe like a soundstage with banks of tape recorders and film projectors. He was determined to find where the control words and images were coined. He was using cut-ups in an attempt to backtrack the word lines to find out where and when the conditioning had taken place. And more importantly, who was responsible? <laughs> Suspicion fell on Time Magazine's enormous newspaper clipping morgue and files of the FBI and CIA. But they are more likely to be the source material for control, not the masters of it. However, with the aid of a great deal of Mahjan, Bill had finally determined that everybody was in fact an agent for a giant trust of insects from another galaxy. Though, as usual with Burroughs, it's hard to tell if he was literally, if he was meaning this literally or not. Or if he, if he was under the influence of... Mahjan? Yeah. Yeah, because he thinks that every, the, the sheer fabric of reality is being controlled by giant insects from another galaxy. Oh, my. <laughs> I told you it's going to keep getting weirder. Dude is messed up. <laughs> However, he was certainly convinced that everyone was an agent for the control and that the only way to find out who they really were was to cut them up. When Burroughs took off from Paris, he had left behind the unedited manuscript of his next book, The Soft Machine, presumably expecting Brian or Biles to edit it into shape for publication by Olympia. He's just here. I'm going to leave this here. You do the work. Ginsburg immediately took charge of editing, and Brian deferred to his greater ability, working alongside, explaining where sections should go and, and the thread of ideas. Brian did a painting for the dust jacket, and Alan wrote the blurb for the flap. In it, he explained cut-ups as he understood them. The book was published June 1961. The text is cut-up of material originating from Burroughs' thousand-page, quote, word hoard left over from the Naked Lunch, arranged in four books, each of which has a color theme. Unit 1, red, transitional period. Unit 2, green, things police keep all boardroom reports. Yes, that, I, I didn't fuck that up. That is what it is called. Thing police keep all boardroom reports. Unit 3, blue, have you seen Slotless City? <clears throat> Union 4, white, Poison of dead sun in our brains. Okay, so all all the color chapter book names or whatever were all cut-ups too? Yeah, yeah, the soft machine is entirely a cut-up piece. Okay. That's why I told you, that's why the names are so fucking weird. 
thing police keep all boardroom reports. Within each are a dozen or so chapters, each with a name. The contents of each chapter become progressively more cut up so that the same words and phrases recur over and over in different contexts with a different meaning. As the chapters are short, rarely more than two pages, this has the effect of a wave of words breaking on a shore, becoming more and more fragmented. Eddies and whirlpools of words with shorter and shorter sentences until a new wave breaks. As a new chapter begins, the soft machine is the most intensely cut up of all Burroughs' books. The only sustain, sustained narrative in the book lasts for about three pages before becoming progressively more fragmented. So it's, uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's just a big book of gibberish. Probably. But he puts it together to, it doesn't even really tell a story. I don't know, to me it's weird, but I know a lot of people out there just kind of love that shit. Alan, Peter, and Gregory Corso arrived in Tangier at the very beginning of July, but despite writing and wiring their arrival time, there was no one there to welcome them on the dock dockside when they arrived. Bill set to work on the texts that were to become the ticket that exploded, but was soon distracted by a new discovery. Making collage of photographs, drawings, newspapers, etc. now took pictures of collage. Now, make the collage of the col pictures of the collage. Take it. Cut it, take it, cut it, over and over again until you have just a mess of shit. As usual, Burroughs became completely engrossed, and soon he was working full-time on these experiments. Although he was unaware of it, the method Burroughs used was groundbreaking. Until then, collage had been created using elements selected for their color, shape, or texture. Though Burroughs arranged them aesthetically in formal compositions, he chose the elements of only for their meaning to him. Photographs of his family, boyfriends, past and present. Photographs he had taken of street scenes and places where he had lived. So that's what he used. He was systematically cutting up friendships, memories, and attachments, all of which he regarded as potential elements of control that needed to be analyzed. So all this stuff he was doing, literally cutting his friends and cutting these places he lived, he was also doing figuratively in his own life. With the arrival of Ian Somerville, or Technical Tilly, as he was called, at the end of May, no more ambitious experiments were conducted. With Ian there, Burroughs continued to develop the emotional collages, whereas Somerville took over the infinite reduction collages and made them his own. So he got Ian into doing this shit, too. Okay. So... So I know this isn't much about his writing. This is a big part of his life. But it's like right here, this is doing these collages completely changes his personality. So Allen Ginsberg, Peter Ovlosky, and Gregory Corso cannot afford the villa where Bill had stayed. So they stayed inside a cheaper hotel. They were saving money for more traveling. So they couldn't really go out to eat like Bill liked. Bill had changed. He was cold and distant toward his years-long friends and Ian and Mikey always sided with him. Just as Burroughs had been cutting up his relationships attachments to his parents and lovers with his photo, uh, photographic collages, he had moved on and was now doing it in person. Instead of his old friend and ex-lover, Ginsburg found a remote, emotionless, suspicious individual who snarled that friendships were just another form of control that had to be cut up. As far as Bill was concerned, everyone was an agent under someone else's control. 
Alan said it was, quote, a little difficult to see old to see old friend Bill looking at me if I was a robot sent to check him out or to be checked out. Burroughs now felt that cut-ups were the only way to cut through the unthinking acceptance of everyday thought and behavior and acted as control on most people's lives. Ginsburg anguished over Bill's new attitude, particularly when Bill criticized him for his attachments to Peter and himself and was scathing about Alan's reliance on his old friends, something that Bill thought of as, a, as mere sentimentality. But it was Peter Orlovsky who had the worst time. He had never gotten along well with Burroughs. He'd always been jealous of him. Bill proposed that women were not human at all, but had been sent from a distant galaxy as agents for the giant trust of insects that were manipulating the Earth. Burroughs suggested that all women should be exterminated just as soon as males had found some form of parthenogenesis. Kind of like reproducing asexually just to make men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Peter, unable to see that Burroughs was taunting him, always took these ideas literally, and to Burroughs' delight, he argued adamantly in favor of women and heterosexual love. All this caused tremendous tremendous problems between Alan and Peter and brought to a head the central contradiction in their relationship, that Peter was fundamentally heterosexual. He spent most of his time in bed resting and brooding. Then, after a week in Tangier, he announced that he had enough and was heading on to Istanbul alone. His seven-year, quote-unquote, marriage to Alan was over. And it was all Bill's fault. You think Bill did that on purpose? Of course he did it on purpose. He knew it was going to happen. By September 28, 1961, Burroughs was back in New York City and remained there for about two months, reworking the manuscript for The Soft Machine and working on his new book, then called Nova Express. Grove Press publisher Barry Rossett had already had 10,000 copies of Naked Lunch printed and bound up, but they were sitting in a warehouse. Burroughs had sent the manuscript of The Soft Machine to Grove from London and Bill's editor, Dick Seaver, was concerned that it was too dense and difficult for readers to understand. He wanted a more straight narrative, and Burroughs was endeavoring to make it suitable for the American audience, because apparently Americans don't understand the same thing that Europeans do. (laughs) Burroughs worked on his book seeing no one. He made no effort to contact Lucian Carr or Kerouac or any of his old friends. He had handed in the text that was acceptable to Seavers and returned to London. It was years before Grove released it. When Naked Lunch was finally published, it sold well in hardback. It sold so well that the American edition of The Soft Machine was delayed until March 21st, 1966, when Naked Lunch finally came out on paperback. They didn't want to release two books at the same time in hardback. Bill left the States by the end of 1961 and settled back in the Empress Hotel in London. Convenient as it was with his full English breakfast, Bill really needed more space. Through John Calder, who published his Things Police Keep All Bedroom Reports, in Volume 3 of his International Library Annual in 1961, Bill met Marion Londenberg, who was soon to marry Arthur Boyers and join forces with John Calder to create Calder and Boyers, publishers of the UK edition of The Soft Machine, The Wild Boys, and a few others. Marion had just moved to a new flat in Chelsea and subletted her flat 52 Lancaster Terrace to Bill on February 29th, 1962. Together with Mikey Portman, Bill moved in. He might have predicted living with Mikey was a nightmare. Holes burned in bedding, 
cigarette burns on the tables. Bill's clothes borrowed without asking him, and instead of being laundered in return, just thrown in a heap, dirty in the corner. Like many spoiled rich people, Mikey never seemed to have any actual cash on him, so Bill was constantly paying for cabs, meals, and drinks. It lasted about 10 days. (laughs) (laughs) Good for Bill. Yeah, no shit. Uh, We live with a bunch of kids who do that type of shit, and I can't imagine living with another adult who does that. Oh, God, yes. Bill liked the neighborhood, though. It was much closer to Soho and the center of the town than Earl's Court. And the beginning of March, he moved just a few doors down the street to a basement at 5 Lancaster Terrace. Instead of Mikey, who was banished, he now shared with Ian. Ian played quite an, quite an important role in the creation of Nova Express, contributing the technical notes to the Chinese laundry section and co-writing This Horrible Case all sections from the book. In addition, several sections of the book utilized tape recorder cut-ups, usually manipulated by by Ian, which were then transcribed. You're going to see more and more of the the tape shit. When he starts, he really starts to learn how to fuck with people with these tapes. Uh, So much so that he actually gets a couple places closed down because he's doing this shit. Wow. Yeah. Bill continued to move between London and Paris, always staying at the Beat Hotel in November 1962. He finished both Nova Express and The Ticket That Exploded. He also compiled a book of selections from The Naked Lunch, The Soft Machine, and The Ticket That Exploded to be published by John Calder in England under the title Dead Fingers Talk. He told Alan Anson that by, by, quote, Rearranging the material and added some new sections, I have endeavored to create a new novel rather than miscellaneous selection. He said he expected the book to be out March 1963, the same time that Grove was to publish Nova Express in New York. In the course of selecting and rearranging, he became so dissatisfied with the soft machine that he completely rewrote it, taking out most of the cut-ups and substituting 65 pages of new material in a straight narrative line. He told Anson, quote, One has not been idle, nor was Bill altogether satisfied with Ticket. He did, indeed, later rewrite that as well. Burroughs summed up the book for American journalists, quote, The ticket that exploded involved the Nova Nova conspiracy to blow up the Earth and then leave it through reincarnation by projected image onto another planet. The plot failed, so the title has both meanings. Had the ticket exploded been accessible to more people, it could have been this book that established Burroughs' credentials as a science fiction writer. For here is the planet with four colored suns and a green sky. Here are the green fish boys and the green newt boys. And it introduces the Nova Police. Quote, I am sure none of you have ever seen the Nova, a Nova Police officer. When disorder on any planet reaches a certain point, the regulating instance scans police. Otherwise, Another plant bites the cosmic dust. <laughs> so they pretty much, if, if, if a planet becomes too hostile, they just blow it up. And then project the image of the planet onto another planet. So like nothing happened. Nice. Yeah. The book also contains a graphic account of sex with Kiki, which Burroughs says was an accurate description and affirmed that Kiki's speech is always verbatim. Gerardius, as usual, did one of his quick print jobs. The ticket that exploded was out in December 1962, a month after Burroughs handed it in. The launch party for Ticket was held December 1962 at Gerardius' Le Grand Severn 
a multi-level nightclub and restaurant where they wined and dined and enjoyed the whole trip apart from one unfortunate incident. He subsequently wrote Alan Anson, quote, I have been on the wagon for some months following a horrible traumatic incident at a party in Paris where I ended up in bed with a woman. Burroughs returned to London in, 1960, in December 1962, telling a journalist, quote, I like England. <laughs> in January 1963, so you see that the whole I, I need cunt thing? Yeah. And now he had sex with a woman and he's very distraught about it. In January 1963, there was a sudden flurry of activity in Anthony Balk's film, Towers Open Fire, was completed, or so they thought, in a two-week spurt. The script was based on a passage from the combat troops in the area section of the ticket that exploded. The film was shot over all over Paris, London, and Tangier. The film opened at Paris Pullman on Drayton Gardens in 1963 as the sporting supporting short for Todd Brown's Freaks, also distributed by Balk. Tower was a groundbreaking film in another area, whereas that it's possible that it's the first film made in which the entire creative team, Burroughs, Balk, Jesson, Somerville, and Portman, were gay. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. This was one of the periods in the early 60s when Burroughs was back on junk. In February 1963, Burroughs paid one last visit to the Beat Hotel, which had been sold and was about to be redeveloped. At a party, he got drunk and once more ended, in ended up in bed with a woman back at the hotel. Quote, I don't remember her. I suppressed it. She had red hair. Not much happened. American. It was not enjoyable. Terrible. It was on this visit that Burroughs met Samuel Beckett, one of his literary heroes. Beckett had two objections to his fold-in method, as he called it. Uh, Beckett called it plumbing over and over again in the conversation and complained, quote, you're using other writers' work. So that was his big thing with it. It wasn't that it was hard to read or anything like that. It was that Burroughs was taking other people's work and just cutting it up to make his own. Yeah, that that would make sense. Yeah. Because it's somewhat plagiarism. Somewhat. More and more, Bill felt, that his, Bill felt that his future was tied to Ian Somerville. When the Beat Hotel finally closed, they moved around the corner to the Hotel Pax before returning to Five Lancaster Terrace. He was happy to be back in London. Quote, it's a man's town. Fed up with constantly moving and with hotel living, Bill decided to settle down back in Tangier and invited Ian to join him. So he's, uh, London's a man's town and I'm moving to Tangier. Yeah. I love London so much. Let's move to Tangier. Yeah. On June 25th, 1963, Ian and Bill arrived in Tangier, intending to set up house together. They had been house hunting for two weeks, and the house at number four, Cal Larachi, on the Marchand, off the Avenue Des USA, was the first that seemed at all possible. The house looked charming. It was on a quiet side street, shadowed by trees. And they even thought that the little Moroccan children were cute as they clustered around them, smiling. Fingaro, or one cigarette. Yeah, Moroccan children apparently smoked like chimneys. <laughs> At the large American-owned villa across the street, the old bearded guard looked like someone straight out of the Arabian Nights. Later, Burroughs felt that he should have known something was wrong. The agent had not wished to show them the house, and sent his assistant, Abdullah. When they arrived there, had been bad omen. 
The cab door slammed on Abdullah's thumb as he was getting out. Quote, I do not recall if I felt any twitches of foreboding on the remote summer day. The young man's thumbnail was already turning black. They moved in on July 15, 1963. Mikey Portman arrived and settled in with them. Their time here, again, foreboding, will not be a good one. Another reason to find a house was that Bill had decided that he was time that he got to know his son, Billy Jr. And that is where we will pick up on William S. Burroughs, part four. Damn, but I thought he banned Mikey. He banned Mikey from the hotel, in, from uh, the apartment in London. But he didn't ban Mikey from his life. Oh, okay. Mikey won't leave his life for a very long time. And he's finally going to get to know his, his son after, fuck, how many years? Um... Yeah, let's put a pin in that whole getting to know his son thing. His son's gonna you're gonna you're gonna meet Billy Jr. Uh, but as far as him and Bill getting to know each other, I mean, how much how much animosity do you think Billy Jr. has towards his father? Killed his mother, pretty much abandoned him, separated him from his his sister. Uh, Probably a lot. Yeah, and so you can guess how much of that's gonna come into play. It's yeah. Billy, Billy Jr. is a, uh, it's a, he's a tragic character. It's going to be sad. Yeah. So we got a lot of shit that's going to happen next episode. Um, and the Harper Lee episodes, we talked about the uh, Chicago riots that happened at the DNC. Guess who's there during the whole thing? William S. Burroughs. William S. Burroughs as a journalist. Oh, so he gets a job? Uh, he is offered a job. He goes and he he helps write. This is this is where we will first see uh, him fucking around with the tape recorder to manipulate people, and uh, the the march that happens through Chicago streets. He's at the very front of it, so you're gonna see all that. There's a bunch of other stuff you're gonna see. I don't believe there's any murder in the next episode, but um, there's a lot of people getting beat half to death. So you know you have that. Um, all right, another long. I told you guys it was gonna be. A bunch of long fucking episodes, and this one no different. So let's uh, let's get the socials out there, the Instagrams and the Twitters, and uh, let's get let everybody get back to whatever the fuck they need to do. We are at Open A F I N G Book on Twitter and Instagram. We are at Audio Parfait on Twitter and Instagram, and I am at E C J B A T on Twitter and Instagram. I am young etam on Instagram and young etam six on Twitter. Uh, I've given out the wrong shit before, apparently. Uh, if you look up young etam, I come up on both of them, so just click on that one. Uh, audioparfait.com is our website. You can email us info at audioparfait.com. If there's anybody you want to cover, if you want to tell us how good or bad we're doing, if you really want to tell us how good we're doing, you can go over to our new Patreon page. And it's patreon.com slash audio parfait. We have four different tiers that you can pick from, uh, all named after parfaits. Some of our favorite parfaits. So uh, go look at that and uh, support it. If if you want to support us, great. Uh, If you don't, don't don't feel like it or can't then you know email us and and let us know whatever you're thinking we'd love to hear from you guys uh 
Well, I think that's it for today. We have to get ready for next week because it's going to be a hell of a show. Hell of a show. All right. So take care of yourselves. Take care of one another. And between now and the time we get to talk to you next, do yourself a favor. Go open a fucking book. All right. See you. Bye, guys.